Okay. Um, well, I always ask a couple of thought questions, at least one. So we'll see. I've got two questions. Perhaps one of them is a thought question. So I got a 50% chance, right? And whatever. Uh, question here. <clears throat> what is the most important thing to know about evangelism? That's our topic for tonight. What's the most important thing to know about evangelism? You, you think that's the most important thing? Uh, well, that, that, I would say that's maybe part B here. What did you say? Somebody else? Okay, well, that's true. All of those are true uh, truisms. Uh, I'm thinking the most important thing about evangelism is the message itself. Yeah, getting it right. Getting the message right. You know, there's lots of uh, Catholics do evangelism. Mormons do evangelism, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you don't have the message right, I don't care what your activity is. So the most important thing about evangelism, in my mind, is the message itself and getting the message right. Um, and then, of course, uh, like uh, you said, uh, follow that up with, once, you, once you've got the message right, what are you supposed to do with it? Well, just sit on it, right? Just, I mean, make sure you don't mess it up, so you just sit on it. And No, you don't let your light sit under a bushel basket. <laughs> you want to shine it. Uh, next question. Um, why do you suppose God chose to use human beings for this all-important task? I mean, there's nothing more important than this task. I mean, eternity is on the balance, in the balance here. As far as people, they need to hear this message, right? They need to respond to this message. Why do you suppose God entrusted human beings with this task? What else are we going to do? Well, God's got some other options, is my thought here. Uh, like uh, angels, for example. Uh, they are, after all, called messengers, right? And... Uh, do we find angels doing this task of uh, evangelism? Where? Ah, the one example that we have in the Bible is in Revelation 14.6. That's true. We find an angel flying through the midst of heaven. But you know, that's in a set in a context in the midst of the tribulation period. And, it, and it's, God's making sure that every tribe, tongue, and nation are hearing, and the, and the angels flying through the midst of heaven. On top of all the other things, you've got the 144,000 Jewish uh, evangelists and all that. But Revelation 14.6 is not the norm. <laughs> Certainly not for the church age, right? So my question is, okay, God do, would have other options. I mean, he could do it supernaturally, right? I mean, he appeared to different people supernaturally. I mean, he, he personally confronted Cain about his sin. You know, he doesn't do that normally most of the time, right? Most of the time, God has chosen. How will they hear except for a preacher, right? Romans 10. And how's the preacher going to go unless he's sent and, and so forth? Why do you suppose God chose to do it this way? Well, we can fall back on our, our standard answer, right? God is God and he can do whatever he wants to do, the, the way he wants to do, when he wants to do it, and why he wants to do it. That's true. Uh, any other ideas beside that standard answer? Ah, you get a gold star. And? And the personal Yeah, you know, it's interesting. God likes to do things with people and through people. He could just do it independently of us. I mean, God really doesn't need our efforts in the mix here. But God has chosen to use people who he created in his image who are able to have fellowship with him. And, and work in a, in a relationship with him in that way. And so it seems like in terms of this special mission to mankind, he wants to use mankind in that process. Could he use angels? 
et cetera, et cetera. But uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, that's a good question, Bill, when you bring out what else we're going to do. Um, it seems that people are finding quite a few other things to do. <laughs> it seems like we're a little delinquent when it comes to this whole issue of evangelism. So, you know, it's true. What else should we be doing? That's a good question. But uh, they do seem to find things to do. I don't know. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's right. Amen to that. That's a good statement. Okay, well, let me lead us in prayer. We'll get into evangelism here. Lord, we again, thank you uh, for our time, and I thank you f- uh, for each one that's here, and I pray that you would guide and direct us in our study. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We had two prayers now, so we're really good to go, right? <laughs> pray without ceasing, right? It's not, we already covered prayer, so all right. Uh, evangelism. God desires all humanity to know him. Uh, Natural revelation reveals the reality and power of God, but his plan of salvation is known only through special revelation as revealed in the scriptures. Uh, To his people, God has given uh, the responsibility of communicating the gospel of salvation to a lost and dying world. And, uh, you know, this, I think, is the highest task that we've been given to do as far as, you know, as far as mission-oriented. Is there a higher activity than evangelism, do you suppose? I think there might be. Uh, what, what might it be? Well, love is kind of part of the mission. I mean, they'll know we are his disciples by our love. Uh, how, how about just worship? I mean, we, we were created. You know, when we get to, if, if evangelism is the only really meaningful activity, when we get to heaven, we're going to really have a problem. Because <laughs> we're, we're not going to do any evangelism in heaven. At least I, I don't think so, right? <laughs> I know we're not. Anyway, okay, uh, next, uh, first uh, point there. God desires all people to be saved. What is God's invitation in Isaiah 45, 22? What's his invitation? Yeah, look unto me. And who's to look? Who's he inviting? Everyone. All the ends of the earth. Uh, it's not like, you know, he's leaving anybody out here. Uh, you know, um, is God a Calvinist? I mean, does he only have certain ones that he's interested in here? Uh, I mean, uh, he, he, in fact, it kinda, he gets pleasure in damning certain ones and, and saving other ones. Yeah, right. We're going to get there. But, uh, you know, I'm talking about in the high Calvinist sense, uh, because uh, uh, <clears throat> you probably would even call me a Calvinist in the right sense of the word, as far as uh, emphasizing the sovereignty of God, which Calvinists do. But if you take it to the extreme... Uh, where you say, you know, all God cares about is the elect. Uh, I don't know how that fits in with uh, where God's inviting, uh, looking to be, uh, and be saved, all the ends of the earth. So uh, he wants the whole world uh, to look to him. Okay, uh, to what extent did God so love the world as seen in John 3.16? To what extent? He gave his only begotten son, which is another way of saying what? Well, yeah. He gave, he gave himself in the sense that the Son is part of the triune Godhead. That's true. And he gave his all, right? I mean, what more could God give than what he did give in, in the form of his only begotten Son? I mean, he gave, he gave his all in giving his only begotten Son. Um, by the way, I believe this is why it is so serious uh, for people to um, to spurn 
the love of God. Uh, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. To spurn that love is, is a major uh, offense to God. As Hebrews says, how should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Uh, so that is, a, that is the major reason why this is so offensive to God. God gave his only begotten son to reject that is, is a, I can't think of anything more offensive to God than that. So Hebrews 10, uh, real strong there as far as uh, we've trampled the son, the, those that do so have trampled the son of God underfoot. They've counted the blood of the covenant uh, as a common thing, insult of the spirit of grace, all of those things. Okay, um, what is God's desire as seen in 1 Timothy 2.4? Right. God desires for, for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, does God get what he wants? <laughs> well, we've had this conversation before, I don't... Um, he desires all to be saved, that's for sure. We, we know he wants people to be saved. And uh, how do they do that according to this verse? What do people need, what do people need to uh, understand? Knowledge the, the knowledge of the truth. And what is that knowledge? Jesus. Jesus. Well, right. What we call the gospel, right? The gospel. And he goes on to say there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I mean, so that's, that's the idea, that uh, we come to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, this knowledge of the truth, that, uh, which is the truth of Jesus Christ and, and what he has done for us so that we might be saved. Okay, and then the final question here. Why is God still waiting and holding judgment at bay as seen in Second Peter 3.9? Yeah. It's like there's a pause button over here. And, and why is God waiting? We keep saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus. And, and, and he's just continuing to hold the pause button here. Well, why? Well, he's waiting for more people to get saved. Uh, he's uh, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, emphasis on all. By the way, you know, I, I have a couple of memory verses that I've just been reviewing in Ezekiel. And one says, it goes like this, Ezekiel 18.32, where God says, I have no pleasure in the death of him who dies. Therefore, turn yourselves and live. Well, does that sound like there's any responsibility in the mix here? God says, I don't want you to die. Therefore, turn. Uh, again, in Ezekiel 33.11, say, say unto them as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Real strong emphasis on you need to turn. And God's saying, I don't have any pleasure in your death. Why are you going to go in this direction? Turn from your evil way. You know, that impresses upon me that there's some human responsibility in the mix. Uh, and this is where I kind of have an issue with the Calvinist who says, well, God just zaps people. You know, he just somehow zaps you with faith. And I agree with the Calvinists that God is the initiator and God uh, is the one, none on their own seek after God. But when God intervenes in your life and he's knocking on your heart's door, you better respond to it. You better turn. You better listen to what he's saying. Even as with Cain, I always go back to Cain, you know, the first example in the Bible where God's confronting a lost person and saying to Cain, sin lies at the door. Uh, but you better not listen to it. 
Uh, well, what did Cain do? He didn't listen to God, did he? Well, God intervened in Cain's life. Cain's responsible for that intervention, but he, he, didn't, he didn't listen. So there is this issue of uh, human response and human responsibility. Okay, God desires all to be saved. Any other uh, input there? Yes, Kate? Oh, yeah, Ezekiel 18.32 and Ezekiel 33.11. I don't know. Like I say, I was just going through this in my memory work. And, uh, you know, before I go to sleep at night, I run through some verses I've already memorized. These were two verses I was going through last night. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, that kind of fits in with my lesson. So I don't know if it's in the teacher's book or not. (laughs) You better do what Kate's doing, jot it down. Anyway. Uh, okay, any other input? Let's press on here. Page 174, getting the gospel message right. How critical did Paul see getting the gospel message right in Galatians 1, 6 through 9? <laughs> Very critical. So critical that, that how did he frame it? What did he say if you don't get it right? Yeah, if you teach another gospel, uh, let him be accursed. And he says it twice uh, for emphasis there. So you can see that for Paul to get the message right, the gospel message right, was of critical importance. And how might we uh, frame this as far as getting the gospel right? Uh, In the context of Galatians 1, what what is the emphasis here? Uh, Who's on the scene in the book of Galatians? I know we didn't come prepared to talk about Galatians tonight. But maybe somebody has general Bible knowledge here. Legalists. And what do legalists do? Jesus plus. That's what legalists do. Always say, oh yeah, Jesus is fine. But, but you also got to do this. You also have to be circumcised. You also have to go by the law. Uh, whatever. We say grace says it's Jesus alone. I'm going to heaven purely because of Jesus. And he did it all on the cross. You know, there wasn't anybody with him there. It was all by himself, paying for the sin of the world. So, uh, yeah, Jesus plus. Uh, you, you have a Jesus plus message, you can just write a curse right over your life, right over your message. Okay, uh, next question. What is the essence of the gospel messages brought out in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4? What is the essence of, of the gospel message there? In the gospel, well, that's true. What is it? Ah, according according to the scriptures. So this isn't just a, a message that's out here coming out of the blue. It's it's uh, this message of Christ died for our sins. By the way, where are you at there in the formula in the gospel formula? Christ died for our sins. Where, where are you at there? Yeah, you're the sinner, uh, but you are are not doing anything to remedy the problem, right? Uh, You're the total cause of it. He's the total remedy. Christ died for our sins. We're not there as far as the doing. Uh, He was buried. Where are you at there? You do that? Uh, He rose again. This is all Jesus doing. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. The gospel is 100% what Jesus does. Uh, We do all the sinning. He does all the saving. He, He did it all 100%. And then this uh, whole thing, according to the scriptures, what's that mean? He did this, this is all according to the scriptures. What scriptures are we talking about? The Old Testament scriptures, right? The prophets. That's right. And where do we find that he died for our sins? 
Isaiah 53, go right there. That'd be, that'd be a key place. There's other places too. How about burial? That's all. Huh? Yes, 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 yes. It's also in Isaiah 53. Very, very clear. And how about resurrection? Well, we're in 53. Let's stick there. It's also there at the end of the chapter. But where else is the prominent, the prominent text as far as quoted in the New Testament, as far as Christ fulfilling a resurrection prophecy in the Old Testament? Psalm 1610. Uh, he will not allow his uh, Holy One uh, to see corruption. So, yeah, Psalm 1610. 16? Psalm 1610. Yeah. Uh, so it's a prophetic gospel. It's according to the scriptures, as Christ's life really is. You, you know, we have, two, we have two testaments in our faith, right? We've got an Old Testament that's telling us all about this coming one. And then we've got this New Testament that says, hey, he's coming, he's fulfilled it. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So it's beautiful how that works. And our gospel's that way too. It's according to the scriptures. Okay, uh, what was the core message as preached by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6, which happens to be one of my favorite gospel texts. It might be my all-time favorite. It's right up there. And uh, what does uh, he say is the core message preached there? Yes, he defines it as the gospel of the glory of Christ. This is going to be good. What is the, the good news of the glory of Christ? Ah, uh, that's right. The very image of God. That's who he is. The very image of God. And he is called Jesus Christ, the Lord. And then he says, what is the light of the knowledge? In the face of Jesus Christ. What do we see in the face of Jesus Christ? What do we see in the person of Jesus Christ? The, the glory of God. So put that all together. Uh, the very image of God, the Lord, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is this gospel telling us about Jesus, who he is? He is God Almighty, the eternal God Almighty, which is a part of our gospel story. Uh, it's about who Jesus is and what he's done for us on the cross. It's about who he is. Those two things. Okay. Um, any other input there? Okay. Uh, what does Romans 4, 4 and 5 reveal about works versus faith? Who does God count righteous? Uh -huh. Well, that's true. But more than that... It's true. It might trump works, but where do works? I know, I know. And, it, and it's true. It's true. But uh, God counts righteous who? Those who believe. It's credited. Righteous belief is credited as right. Okay, let me play the devil's advocate here. Okay. I, I, I believe. I believe in Jesus. But I also believe that I need to do a few things. Well, that's true. I'm looking at this verse, though, and it's qualifying the kind of faith we're talking about here. Ah, the one who does not work. That's right. The one who does not work, but rather believes. 
This person's faith is counted for righteousness. So what kind of a faith is it that God's looking for? One that says, my works have nothing to do with it. Right? I'm believing in Jesus alone as my Savior. So that's a great qualifier as far as what kind of faith we're talking about. It's not just a faith, it's not faith plus works. It's a faith that doesn't work in the sense that as far as my salvation. Now, let's talk about this a little bit. Does this mean that, um, you know, uh, okay, uh, I'm not saved by my works, so therefore works have no significance whatsoever? Ah, that's what we're talking about. It's not a faith that trusts in works for salvation. Uh, Where do the works come in? And we call that fruit, right? We call that, it's fruit. Works are the fruit. Uh, They're not the root, they're the fruit, right? That's right. Okay, so uh, this is the one who God counts righteous. And uh, it really kind of emphasizes what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your works or are you trusting in in the Lord alone? You know, you get down to it, it's trying or trusting. How are you getting to heaven? You're trying or you're trusting? Well, it's trusting that really is uh, the right kind of faith that God counts righteous. Trusting in Jesus Christ alone. I don't have anything, you know, if it was up to me, I'd always wonder, boy, did I do it the right way? Did I do enough? Uh, You know, can I... Uh, there'd always be a lingering doubt, wouldn't there? Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm trusting in him. Okay, uh, along with that, how are we saved according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? And that not of... Yeah, not, a, not of yourselves, not, not of works, lest anyone should... You know, and that wouldn't, wouldn't that be just so human? Look at what I have done, friends. <laughs> Let me share my testimony, what I've done. Nobody can boast. You know, we all can boast in a sense, though, right? There there is a little something for boasting, right? Galatians 6.14, God forbid that that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So we do boast, not in ourselves, totally in Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. That's where our boast is found. All right, uh, grace and works mutually exclusive. Uh, that's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 shows us. Any other uh, thoughts here? Input? Okay, let's go on here. Page 175. What did Christ say should be preached to all nations in Luke 24, 46 through 47? After his resurrection, he said this. This is one of the parallel passages that kind of correlates with what we call the, the Great Commission. Uh, what did Christ said, uh, say should be preached uh, in his name among all nations? Repentance and remission of sins. And they go together, right? I mean, you can't really have remission of sin, uh, sins if there's not repentance. As far as the human response, uh, God demands repentance. Repentance and remission of sins. By the way... Um, Sometimes the Bible emphasizes repentance, like we have here from the lips of the Lord Jesus. And sometimes it it emphasizes faith, like in John 3, 16, whoever believes on him should not perish. Well, which is it? Oh, yeah, (laughs) that's right. Yes. Uh, Why do you suppose it is this way, though, in the scripture? Sometimes emphasizing repentance, sometimes emphasizing faith. Well, the one assumes the other. 
when you consider the whole counsel of God. In other words, repentance means to have a change of mind. I think we're talking about a change of mind kind of faith. that acknowledges I got a sin problem and finds the answer in the Savior that God has provided. And uh, so wherever you have true faith as you study the scriptures, uh, not a bogus faith, there is this repentance. There is a change of mind involved in a saving faith. And so, um, yeah, they go together. It's, it's a package deal. It's really a qualifier in terms of the, the kind of faith we're talking about. Okay, um, let's talk about James 2.17. What does James 2.17 contrast with a living faith? Well, no, I'm looking for the contrast with a living faith. <laughs> that wouldn't be the faith that works. That would be the faith that... Yeah, that doesn't work, right? A, a, a dead faith. By the way, this tells you there's more than one kind of faith. There, there is a living faith and there is a, a dead faith. Even the demons believe and tremble. Uh, you know, you don't want to have demon-like faith. I mean, they acknowledge. They got an intellectual assent, all right. They know all the, all the truths, but uh, their heart is not in line with Christ. Their allegiance is not to Jesus Christ. It's not a heart faith. It's a head faith with demons. But uh, here we got a dead faith. Uh, things that are dead, what is kind of the description here as far as dead faith? If something's dead, it doesn't do anything, right? It doesn't move. It doesn't work. Uh, so really, a, it's a workless faith. And a workless faith is a worthless faith. Now, we're not saved by our works. We've already emphasized that. But if you have a living faith, living things move. And, and they demonstrate themselves in, in, in moving, in, in action. And uh, that's the emphasis of James 2. Uh, we have a living faith. Okay, um, John wrote the entire Gospel of John for what purpose, as seen in John 20, 30, and 31? That we might believe, right? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and? Right. What's stated twice in that verse? Belief, the issue of belief. I mean, John, the apostle, wrote this whole gospel of John so that we might believe and have life. He says that's the whole purpose of writing the whole gospel of John. Now, let me ask you a question. I mean, John was an apostle. Do you think he got it right? I mean, he was human. Do you think he got it right? Of course he got it right. You know, he didn't mention anything else in this, in this verse other than belief. He mentioned it twice. Uh, he didn't mention baptism. He didn't mention sacraments. He didn't mention good works. He didn't even mention going to church. And he left out tithing. I mean, what's involved in saving a person? According to John, if you believe, you have life in his name. Stated for twice in, uh, stated for emphasis twice in his purpose statement here. Okay. Um, anything else? All right, let's go on to the next question. What is the method that pleased God to bring about salvation as referenced in 1 Corinthians one twenty one? Right. It, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to what? To save those who believe. What's God's method? Preaching a very sophisticated, eloquent message that will astound everyone? No. Now, when it says the foolishness of the message preached, what's the perspective there? From whose perspective is this a foolish message? The world's. 
Yeah, this is how the world sees. I mean, are you kidding me? A man on a cross? That, that's all you got? I mean, that's how you're going to save the world? Really? Yeah, that's it. And that ha- is the method that God has chosen. That simple message to save those who believe. Uh, so, you know, as you study, I, one of my favorite sections in the Bible is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 3. And you will find there a tremendous emphasis on God does this in such a way that there is no concession to human wisdom. We really like to bring that in as far as, you know, boy, uh, we got these great apologists or whatever. They make all these great arguments and boy, that's convincing. That's not really God's method. I mean, Paul showed up at Corinth. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And so I decided I need to kind of shake it off and get a little bit more impressive. (laughs) No, no. He says, even with all that, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You have to realize Corinth was a place that prided itself on secular wisdom, worldly wisdom. Paul says, I'm showing up with a simple gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Hey, Zach. He said, Paul, not going to work. That's a little too simple, Paul. You need something a little bit more sophisticated, you know, that will impress them. Nope, it's not what God used. He used that simple gospel to start a church at Corinth. Okay, um, this, is how, this is what pleased God uh, to save those who believe this, the foolishness of the message preached. Uh, next question, on what basis does faith come as seen in Romans 10, 17? Hey, how does people come to faith? I mean, how are we going to see this happen? Faith comes by? Hearing? hearing? What do they got to hear? The word, the word of God. That's right. Uh, somehow the Holy Spirit takes the living word of God and works in a miraculous way in the hearts of people that brings about faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the, the word of God. Now, what does hearing uh, presume? There's a, there's, a, there's a response to it, right? Uh, as Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You have, you have to listen. You have to respond. And, uh, but this is how it happens. Faith and the word of God go together. We see this all the way through the, the scriptures. You say, well, what is faith? Well, faith is always attached to the word. It's not like, well, I just have faith that uh, uh, the Lord is going to give me a large check so I can just quit my job. Uh, Well, what verse do you have in mind? I mean, faith is always connected to a promise, to the word of God. Abraham believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Well, God had made promises to Abraham and Abraham believed it. That's what faith does. It attaches itself to the word of God and says, amen, I believe it, I accept it. So that, that's what faith is in, in the Bible. Okay, any other thoughts? Okay, let's go to the next page. Page uh, 176. The gospel mandate. By all means, share the gospel by all means. Now, somebody, I don't remember who it was, thankfully, but somebody told me they didn't like that line. And so, uh, (laughs) remember who that was? Oh, good. (laughs) No. Yeah, by by all means, share the gospel by all means. Somebody thought that was not a very good line. So, yeah, I think grammatically. But I said, I like it. 
by all means, there's a little play on words here. By all means, share the gospel by all means. Yeah, you know, you can take that a couple of different ways. But anyway, uh, my idea here is in every way possible, share the gospel by all means. And uh, what did Paul do for the sake of the gospel as seen in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23? What did he do? What was his, uh, what was his motivating? Ah, exactly. Came all things to all men that he by, might by all means save some. Uh, what do you think he meant by that? Not letting anything get in the way. Yeah, that's right. Um, he, he crossed all kinds of different cultural boundaries and so forth. And when he went into a certain context, I think he was very careful not to be unnecessarily offensive, right? I don't want to do anything that's going to turn people off as far as my, my gospel message. So I think uh, he was a very winsome kind of a, an evangelist, a very thoughtful kind of evangelist. Uh, this, this particular audience, if I go in there, uh, I, I don't want to be unnecessarily offensive. So, so he was by all means uh, becoming all things to all men that he might by all means win some. I think this too emphasizes both a, a, there's a verbal aspect to evangelism. The message doesn't change in terms of the message of the cross. But uh, there's also a lifestyle involved here uh, that is winsome. How we live and, and how we're uh, approaching uh, a particular group of people or whatever. Okay, uh, next question. The gospel mission of the church began with what in Acts 4? Prayer. Exactly. Uh, again, God works through prayer. You know, he, would, he wouldn't need to work that way. But why do you suppose God does work through prayer? He has chosen to work this way. The church is born out of a prayer meeting. Uh, we see uh, evangelism going forth uh, in, base, in, in answer to prayer. Um, what, what, what is prayer about as far as where we're coming from? Ah, and, and dependence, right? We need God to help us in this endeavor, for sure. So uh, prayer, God works through prayer, and prayer recognizes dependence upon him. And with that, next question goes along with that. Why did Paul request prayer in Colossians 4, 3 and 4? God would open a door. Who opens the doors out here? You say, well, I think we're going to make it happen. We're just going to... You know, shake some things up here and we're going to make it. No, God opens the doors. And Paul says, uh, praying that God would open the door. And what else? Ah, there you go. That he would speak. You know, once you have an open door, then you need to do something with it, right? <laughs> you need to speak. And he's praying for both. God opens the door and then I'll go through it. Then I'll open my mouth. God opens the door and you open your mouth. How's that for an arrangement? He opens the door, you better open your mouth. Uh, do it in a, in a good way. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, who does Proverbs 11.30 count as wise? Right. Or, I like the old King James here, the one who wins souls. Yeah. The word wins is actually attracts. Is the idea of uh, attracting. Uh, and I like that emphasis too. The one who attracts or wins souls. Okay, what responsibility does Proverbs twenty four eleven and twelve relay in regard to those being taken away to death? 
Well, yes, yeah, by way of application, that's what he's saying, right? Uh, the, as we are able, we are responsible to, live, to deliver those drawn towards death. Boy, when you make application to the gospel, uh, this is the world. They are being drawn towards death in, in, a, in a big way. And then he says at the end of those verses that, that God weighs our hearts in this matter. Uh, God sees. Uh, and, uh, you know, what this emphasizes to me here is this whole matter of uh, intervention. We need to get in the way. Uh, people are being drawn towards death, and it's our responsibility to get in the way here, to, to try to do something about it. Now, we know that God has to work, but uh, he wants to use us in the process. All right, any other thoughts? Okay, let's go to the next page. What is the principle, uh, <clears throat> page 177, what is the principle of the watchman's uh, responsibility in Ezekiel 33? Warning. What did the watchman on the wall do? He had just one job, right? When he sees trouble coming, what does he do? Blow the, blow the horn. Blow, warn the people. It's, it's, it's the watchman's really only responsibility to warn the people. And God said, of course, to Ezekiel, I've made you a, a watchman uh, to, to send out a warning. You know, we really are not, I think sometimes in evangelicalism, maybe fundamentalism, whatever word you want to use, we almost thought it was our job to get people to respond. We are going to sing this just as I am now. We're going to sing the 45th verse for the 32nd time. Whatever. Uh, you know, you, you, I need to make you respond. No. You know, the watchman, his job isn't to do that. He just blows the warning out. And it's every man for himself in terms of what you're going to do with this. Uh, response is human responsibility. What, what is your response going to be? I don't feel liable for souls other than warning them. Uh, it's my job to, to send out a warning. Uh, you know, it was encouraging. Somebody has uh, got a terminal illness and... Uh, I was told that I might be called upon. It's not in our church, but I might be called upon because they said, we know, we know how you're going to share the gospel. And this has the potential to be one of those large funerals, maybe several hundred people. Well, they want the gospel to go forth. Well, all I need to do is be faithful to the message. Give out the warning. Be the, the watchman on the wall. Here it is. What are you going to do with it? Uh, the Spirit empowers God's people to be what is seen in Acts 1.8. Witnesses, witnesses. Uh, how far? To the, ends of the earth. to the ends of the earth. Yeah, starts Jerusalem, Judea, a little further, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Right. By the way, where do we find this kind of being uh, lived out then? Uh, a history of it. Uh, this idea of being Christ witnesses, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, what book of the Bible do we find this kind of being? Yeah, the book of Acts. It's a history of this being lived out, the first 30 years of the, of the church, in terms of how this happened, as far as empowered witnesses by the Holy Spirit uh, throughout the book of Acts. And by the way, how does the book of Acts end? Huh? <laughs> well, uh, you would think so. Uh, I mean, yeah, it doesn't really tell us that, but uh, 
It ends abruptly. You know, Acts does not have a, a formal ending. I wonder why that is. You think the story continues? I think it continues. Uh, this, what started in Acts 1.8, we saw Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and we saw it then going further in Paul's missionary journeys uh, to the ends of the earth, so to speak, but the mission is not completed. It's not even completed now. Okay, uh, where are we to go and make disciples as stated in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 19? All the nations. Again, God wants everybody to hear. It's our job to get it out. By the way, um, we are uh, in the Great Commission told to uh, go into all the nations, make disciples. Are unbelievers commanded to go to church? What? How are we going to get them here? We go out and we win them, right? And we bring them. I mean, uh, this is how it works. We're to go out there. The, the, the mission field is out there. You don't say, well, we're going to do evangelism in church Sunday. We're always tying Christ in, of course. But really, when we come together, it's a meeting for the saints. Not so much the ain'ts. Now, if they happen to come in, that's fine. We're glad for them to come in and listen in. But really, the work begins when we leave this place. Uh, you know, we're equipping you to go out there and do it. And then as we win people, you know, they become part of us and they become part of the family. All right. Uh, Romans 10, 20 says the gospel has gone to those who did not ask. What does this imply? Right. And in particular, he's talking about uh, the Gentiles here. And what was their disposition? They were not seeking. Good night. How does this happen? We got this huge amount of people that have responded, and none of them were even looking. They weren't even seeking after God. Of course, we know none seeks after God, as Paul says in Romans 3. But uh, uh, we Gentiles were not seeking uh, for God when the gospel came to us. When the gospel came to the Gentiles, they, they weren't saying, oh man, we're thirsting for God. We're, we're hoping somebody comes and shares with us. They didn't care. They could have cared less. And yet, what happened? The gospel went to those Gentiles, and they did respond by the grace of God. Okay, uh, what does Titus uh, 2, 9, and 10 infer about a lifestyle of evangelism? Uh, he's encouraging them to live in such a way that what? Ah, and again, I like my King James, which talks about that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Uh, adorn means to make attractive, just like you're saying. Uh, to, make, to make it look good. You know, we should, we should put the gospel on display in such a way, that the doctrine of our God, on, uh, our Savior, uh, on display in such a way that it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to behold. Uh, this is kind of what you might call pre-evangelism, Right? I mean, boy, those people, what, what they're all about is a good thing. It's attractive. Okay, any other thoughts before we go to the next page? All right. Page 178. What impact did the testimony of the Samaritan woman have in John 4.39? She went back into the city. She started talking, and what happened? Yeah. Uh, many in the city believed on Christ because of her testimony. You know, this is a, is a wonderful thing. Um, 
what kind of a reputation did the Samaritan woman have? Not a very good one. She had some uh, struggles in her life. And uh, I think society really would have looked down on her. She'd had five husbands. And the one she now lives, she's living in sin with a guy, right? But boy, when she went back to town, <laughs> she had uh, a way about her that was totally convinced by Christ to where she was making an impact on the people in the city. Showing, you know, God can use anybody. He can use anybody. He might use those that society completely says, hey, we have no regard for you. But when Christ changes a life, it's a, it's a powerful thing. Okay, what is the principle of lifestyle evangelism in Galatians 6.10? Yeah, especially, especially to the household of faith. But as we have opportunity, I mean, as you can, do good for, for everybody. And uh, especially the household of faith. So, uh, and the reason we do this, it's always about, you know, seeking to win people to Christ. Uh, that's the idea. In John 13, 34, 35, how are Christians to show a watching world that they are Christ's disciples? Yeah. How? How should we love one another? As Christ loved us. Boy, that's a major qualifier, isn't it? Uh, how did Christ love us? Well, he loved us to death. He loved us to the point where he, he died for us. Uh, he loved us sacrificially. And so uh, Christ says, by, by this all will know that you are my disciples. This is to be a standout thing. So part of our witness is how we treat one another, right? You know, instead of running down the brother, uh, sister, whatever. No, uh, we're to be known by our love. Uh, what does 1 Peter 3.15 emphasize in terms of being an evangelistic witness? Be ready. How often should we be ready? All the time. And what are we doing uh, in being ready? Be ready always to give an answer. What kind of an answer? Right. And a, for the reason of the hope. Hope. You know what people are supposed to see in you? Hope. For some of you, it looks like they're only going to see you're about ready to fall asleep right now. But <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> just kidding late in the evening here. Sorry. Uh, but hope. People are supposed to see hope in us. What is hope? A certain expectation about what? The future. Yet, what is yet to come? A hope beyond this life, right? The, the resurrection hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And, you know, it ought to be such a dynamic in our lives uh, that they say, what is this? What is the reason for this hope? Let's, let's work with this a little bit, okay? Um, now, uh, we just read it, and you just put it down in your notes that we are to be ready always to give an answer uh, for the reason of the hope that is within us, and to do it in the right way with meekness and fear. But uh, can you answer that? Uh, you've got hope? I hope so. <laughs> Why? Why do you have this hope? What is your reason? I mean, somebody's asking you, right? God's promises? Well, you're not supposed to answer this with a question, you're supposed to answer it with an answer. There you go. That's better. That's better. That's right. That's good. I like that. That's a, you're, you're on the right track here. That's good. Uh, that's right. God's promises. Um, what else might we say? What is the reason for the hope that you have? 
I mean, you have a reason, right? I mean, you, it's not just, just a, well, I'm not, it's a totally uncertain hope. I, I have no reason for it whatsoever. You don't want that. What is the reason for the hope that's in you? What are some of the things we talked about tonight? Okay, well, that's true. Why would you believe such a thing like this? I mean, a man dying on the cross for you? Why would you believe that's true? What? Why? <laughs> well, that's true. Let's talk about things like fulfilled prophecy. Right? That's a pretty good reason to believe. I mean, 700 years before it happened, Isaiah said this is going to happen, and it was fulfilled. That, that's a pretty strong reason for the hope that is within you. Uh, all kinds of things we could mention here. Um, but again, according to the scriptures. All right, let's go on to the next page. We have seven minutes, so I'm going to... I did? I skipped a whole page? Oh, a question. I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> Yes, at the bottom of the page. Believers are witnesses, uh, but who gives the increase is seen in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 8. God does. It's amazing. He wants to use us, but it's really God who does it. All the glory goes to God, uh, for sure. Uh, but he uses us as instruments. Next page. Uh, what is the normal process necessary for people to come to faith as, as found in Romans 10, 14 through 15? There you go. And, and uh, so they need, they need a preacher, or what I might call a presenter, right? Somebody needs to take the gospel to these people. I mean, that's where we come in. That's our job. We ought to be thinking, Lord, how can I share the gospel with my neighbors? What can I do? Uh, what can I do with these people that I work with? How can I be a winsome witness? I want to get the gospel to them somehow. You say, well, they're going to reject. Well, that's their problem. I've blown the trumpet on the wall, I've sounded the warning. So, uh, yeah, people need to be sent, they need to hear, they need to believe, and they call, which is really an expression. Uh, it gives expression to, the, to their faith in their heart. What instruction does Paul give about being a witness to those outside the faith in Colossians 4, 5, and 6? Walk in wisdom towards those that are outside and uh, let your speech be Always with grace, seasoned with sugar, salt, salt. To what end? That you might know how you ought to answer everyone. So uh, that kind of tells you, you know, there's, there's going to be kind of like a, a customized answer in, in every situation. But uh, we want to walk in wisdom. And I think walking in wisdom and uh, letting your speech be always with grace go together. I want to be gracious be gracious. Uh, that's a winsome witness towards those that are outside. In Matthew 4, 19, what does Jesus say he will make uh, of his disciples? Fishers of men. And we often call this what? Soul winner. Exactly. What is the main lesson in the parable of the sower and the soils in Luke 8, 11 through 15? Right. Our job is to spread the seed. That's right. And uh, what is the uh, good soil characterized by? Fruit. Right. It, bring, it brings forth good fruit, lasting fruit. Uh, those that respond with a good heart. 
Uh, eternity in the balance. What does 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 communicate about the urgency of responding to the gospel? Now is the accepted time. Uh, there's a tone of urgency there, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Um, say, yeah, but don't worry about it. I mean, if you're one of the elect, it'll be cool. I mean, you'll be fine, you, you know, and, and, and you can't miss it. If you're one of the elect, right? I mean, it just will automatically happen. So don't, there's no urgency here. What? Huh? Yeah. Well, that's it. God is sovereign. And I don't mean to downplay that at all because sovereignty does trump everything. But there is also human responsibility. And there's an urgency there, a tone of urgency. Um, okay, last question. Revelation twenty two seventeen is the last invitation given in the Bible. What does it say? Oh, there you go. That's right. Come. Uh, And, you know, that's an invitation, right? It's not forceful. Come. Come. You know, uh, we could do that as far as inviting people to, let's say, uh, come to church, for example. Uh, I don't tell people, hey, you are coming to church, right? (laughs) I try not to do that. Uh, But we might invite them to come. Well, Christ invites people to come. Last invitation in the Bible. Tremendous emphasis on come. And who's, who's doing the invitation here? Who, who says? The spirit and the bride say come. Well, let's think about this. How does the spirit say come? Through the bride. But what's the, uh, what's the ministry? Where is, the, where is this uh, invitation of come uh, exercised by the, by the Spirit. It's an internal thing, right? He's doing the internal work. The bride's doing the external work. We are saying come externally, and, and the Holy Spirit's doing His work internally in the hearts of people. So you got a double, a double emphasis. The Spirit and the bride say come. We're doing a work, but we're not doing it independent of the Spirit, right? It's the Holy Spirit who's working in conjunction with the bride. I love how that's stated. The Spirit and the bride say, come. It's not like the Spirit's doing his own independent thing out here without the bride. And it's not like the bride's doing her independent thing without the Spirit. It's a, it's a joint effort. We're doing it together. We are responsible for the outward, external message. The Holy Spirit takes it and applies it to the heart. And... Uh, then there must be a human response as well. Um, He ends up by saying there, whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. It's free, right? It's grace. But you have to desire. So I often say, you gotta wanna. You gotta wanna or you're not a gonna. You gotta wanna. Human response. I love this true story about Alexander the Great. Uh, when he would besiege an enemy city, he would put a burning torch at the gate of the city. And it would be announced that whoever wants can come out. If you lay down your arms and you come out, you'll, you'll live. But once the torch is burned out, then whoever would not come out, when the city is attacked, they would be killed and slaughtered. So he gave them, there was, a, there was kind of the, a mercy, a mercy period there where the message is, if you lay down your sword and come out, it'll be okay. Uh, and you know, it's kind of that way with uh, the gospel. 
This is a limited time offer. The door of grace is still open. But you got to come on God's terms. Uh, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as it says in Hebrews chapter 3. Um, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Don't, don't spurn the grace of God. Uh, if you hear his voice, you need to respond while you have the opportunity. All right, any other input as we wrap up here tonight with our... Yes. Sure. You know, it, it's kind of like it, it is a way and, and it kind of depends on who you're dealing with. And uh, but I, I love to bring in about fulfilled prophecy. Uh, I see that's what Jesus is doing after the resurrection. He's connecting all the dots, showing he is the fulfillment of it. I see Paul. This is the way he's presenting the gospel. According to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. Uh, Barry rose again. So, yeah, prophecy is a huge, huge thing, I think. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They don't understand what we're talking about even. Yeah, yeah. You have to explain every little thing here. Yeah, we live in a post-Christian era. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. Um, memory verse, Second Corinthians 5.20. Anyone? Okay. John, did you memorize this one? Okay. Uh, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us. Okay. We beg you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. Okay. That's Second Corinthians 5.20. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were begging you through us, be reconciled to God. So that's a great memory verse. Uh, okay, maybe uh, somebody else other than I can work on that one. Anyway, I'm just teasing you a little bit. All right, we are on to uh, lesson number uh, 26 next time, discipleship. And uh, we have three more lessons, discipleship, how to lead a Bible study, and then we're going to end up with stewardship. I got to looking about when I finished this book, and I thought, man, I, you know, I, I don't want to hammer giving, but stewardship is bigger than just giving as far as finances. And really, the whole of life is a stewardship. I should have something on stewardship in this book. So I added a chapter. So anyway. All right, let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for uh, the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the greatest story ever told. The greatest message ever given. And Lord, how privileged we are to be your ambassadors. Uh, dignified representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ sent on a, on a mission to reach the world. Lord, it's not up to us. Uh, it's the power of the Holy Spirit uh, who empowers us to be your witnesses. Lord, we, uh, we are to give forth the, the message in a winsome way, in a loving way, sharing the truth in love. Really, results are totally up to you. They belong to you. We just need to be faithful with the message. So, Lord, give us open doors. Open doors and help us to open our mouth and speak as we ought to speak with boldness uh, in a winsome way. Lord, again, we thank you for the lesson tonight. May it bear fruit in our lives as we continue to serve you. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for coming.